Brett, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little about yourself. How do you spend your time musically? And what are you up to these days? Well, right now I'm learning some covers. Uh, as, a, as a drummer, I'm learning some covers for this um, Pittsburgh Plays Petty event coming up. Tribute to Petty's music. They put together a bunch of musicians and sort of form bands out of them. And I, um, I'm on the drums with a, with a great group of musicians. And these songs are familiar to all of us, but I just wanted to, wanted to approach it like a beginner. And so I'm, I'm kind of learning them all on guitar first, and then I'm going to be playing drums to them like rehearsal style in my, in my house. Are you playing in more than one band for the Petty performance? No, it's like one, one group. For, and you're, for you're changing instruments song to song? No. You're just playing drums? Mm-hmm. So it's a tribute concert in the Pittsburgh tradition, a la the Beatles shows. Right. That Acoustic Cafe has put on for many years. Exactly. Yeah, those are pretty successful shows in Pittsburgh, especially the the Beatles shows that I've taken part in. Right. Every one of them has been successful. There's no reason to believe that this one is not going to be crazy. It's probably going to be intense with some of the best playing around. Yeah, it's it's exciting um, how it was all put together. And, um, you know, I, I love Mr. Smalls. You know, we're we're right down the street from there right now. That's right. Not to give away your location. Yeah, you know, Millbell is the home of the Chasing the Chords podcast. But we are close, and um, they, have, they have that new digital screen now. It's awesome. It's got to be one of the best places to see a show anywhere. They put so much effort into the sound in that room, and you can tell, like, there's, there's no better sounding room in the city, if you ask me. Really. I mean, if you look, in, look up when you're ever there, you can see, like, wow, they, like, there's so much work put into that ceiling. All those doors and certain angles, things like that. I love it. And now they have a new tier, like a new mezzanine tier. It's just like, it keeps growing. It's- Last time I was there, they only had one balcony. Now there's like a bunch. They went with the, with the three <laughs> balcony more. system. There's more balconies now. It's good. Yeah, it's great. So I judge venues. Well, they like all that space. They they could do so many. I mean, they're going to be doing like so many awesome things. It's just seems like they're just getting started, you know. Great. So that's cool. I thought that we'd start out with a few interview type questions, just to get things up and running. And then in our discussions about what to talk about, Tom Petty's name came up and Malcolm Young's name came up. So maybe we can do a little bit of the dead rock star angle. So anyways, since we're both guitarists, I thought that we'd just start out with some sort of softball guitar questions. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah. how much do you like rock sound, etc. <laughs> but anyways, what, what defines a good riff to you? You're playing a riff on guitar, or you're writing one, or listening to one. What defines its excellence? Wow. Um, right off the bat, I think about whether... If it's if it's a riff that's going to play through the changes of the riff, or if it's a riff that's going to have, no matter how small, pauses in the riff, is in like you know just like full stops, part of the rhythm of the riff. You know what I mean? Which is like I I feel like those are the two. In fact, it's funny you asked me that because, um in like preparing for this just mentally, I was thinking about how Petty is so great at, at 
writing riffs that that are through like the drumming doesn't stop the 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 it's like full strumming he doesn't do like quick stop go riff stuff and the, but then on the Malcolm Young side of course that that was like the the very bloodstream of their riffs was like the bam 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 and I, I think that even though they do have that distinct difference between their style, I think that they're pretty similar in approach as far as tone and open chords go. You know, they're right. both sort of just, just crunching on a clean sound with some open chords and getting that great overdrive sound. So really, if you ask, like, what, what do I think makes a good riff? I think there's, like, two perfect examples of, like, your options for like well in in the full strum riff category you know what I mean or the or the stop and go riff category that's right it, it should be <laughs> a, a clear departure there what sort of riff you're writing and then you can combine the two but it's good if you set definitions like that then you can clearly de- define what you're up to in each moment and when you're writing riffs sometimes you need a little guiding light but at the end of the day i think a really great riff is one that is like, you know, makes you, gives you an emotional response, whatever that might be. Because I think behind all music is emotion, human emotion. And so in, in, as like the, the other side of that creative process is then the the listener process, which would be me in, in this question, you know what I mean? So then I hear a riff, sometimes randomly, sometimes on purpose, and it's the emotional response I get that, that I end up feeling uh, is memorable. Yeah, I like the idea of an emotional response to a riff because that's how I've connected to my entire life as a music fan as, and as a guitarist. If something is making me uh, have that goosebump feeling, which riffs can do and have done. I was first listening to hard rock growing up as a teenager. A lot of those hard rock moments were just sublime to me. Most of it was born of of great guitar riffs. So, on to lead guitar. You're more of a rhythm player, but you do play leads and melodies and make up hooks to your songs. What What do you think about when you're doing that side of things, when you're making up melodies on a guitar? Well, a lot of times they're all stolen from the the vocal hooks, but it might be just one particular movement of that vocal hook in the chorus or wherever it is. And if you could have a, a lead player in your group and you ha- you could handpick their sort of attributes, what are you looking for in that department, guitar player-wise? What, what do you want out of your lead player as a frontman? Uh, right, right off the top of my head, I... I just think of like tasty. Yeah, that's that's for sure because be we tasty. all we all know that lead guitar can descend into untastefulness. Well, and it, I think the tastiness comes with a, a like you know I think the best lead players are are, all, are also some of the best uh, songwriters too, and I think they they are the best lead because they understand the song so well that they can. They can they can steward have good stewardship towards that song, and that's what guides them. Like I, you know what I mean? They're the stewards of the song, right? It's integrity, right? 
because you can really lose your song's integrity if it has some wank solo in the middle that doesn't make any sense. So tones, like the sound is almost just as important. Right. Like Mike Campbell, the guitar player of the Heartbreakers, Tom Petty's mm -hmm. group, he could play some complicated and fancy stuff, but oftentimes he would play like three notes instead and lean into a really great tone. Mm -hmm. That has to be one of the most important things, is to consider lead guitar from the angle of every other human being on Earth that's not a lead guitar player and doesn't care. Right. Seemingly. Yeah. Yeah, because then it's not about the busyness of the fingers. It's about just this, that sound that's happening. It's not some sort of a gymnastics routine, like, like sticking the landing like Mary Lou Retton. Like, <laughs> should we be clapping at the end of your solo? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, should, should, you know, are you Like expect... a mini recital. <laughs> that's right. Are you expecting a, a gold medal when yeah. the song's over? Like, are you standing on a podium? Could you wear something nice? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, let's jump over to Tom Petty for a second. I do have more <laughs> interview-style questions, but I thought that since we were talking about rock tones, I, th I thought that we would scoot over to Tom Petty. And uh, I was thinking about Tom Petty, and he was really an all-around superb rock musician. Many of his songs are fantastic, and his band has that perfect combination of singing and rock instrumentation. And he kept making albums and touring into his 60s. So just all around, he deserves all of his uh, accolades. And he was pretty consistent. I mean, he put out some bad albums and bad songs, but who doesn't, really? Especially when you're active for that long. But more so than many other bands, pretty consistent output, like even the later day stuff. Yeah, and he's such a strange bird because he has so many hits. So that like the songs you hear that you're not maybe you're not familiar with on like an earlier record yeah, the or deep or, cuts yeah when you hear a deep cut he has he has such a vast cavern of hits that when you hear a non-hit it's kind of like what's this like you, yeah it's right. you're hearing it for the first time maybe I mean you know what I mean you gotta give it a, you gotta let it uh, bake he keeps all of his hits in his hit cave right. There's but even those are, I'm telling you, even those super deeps are, are very catchy. Could have been hits. They're super catchy. They're, they're just like, maybe they were rushed in the studio. It's kind of like, okay, let's throw this down and keep going. But they're still like great, really. Yeah, and he's got at least one unimpeachable masterpiece in the record Wildflowers, which is just awesome from cover to cover, in my opinion. And arguably his peak period was the early to mid-1990s when he was in his early to mid-40s, which, as an artist, that's sort of unusual to have a midlife peak like that, it's especially with musicians. Like, take Paul McCartney, for example. I mean, he's put out some pretty good stuff, but you kind of got to go with the Beatles on his best output there. Mm -hmm. And you can't say the same thing for Tom Petty. I mean, his 70s stuff is great. Oh, but I I think that favorite. his early '90s I mean, stuff is is objectively better, in my opinion. Yeah, like so, Mojo, the all yeah, live, yeah, no even, headphones, really incredible album. Yeah, so I think that he's unusual in that sense, a testament to his consistency mm -hmm. and his attempt to get better and better. I mean, I I would say that about Paul McCartney too. He he's continued to try to get better and better. But it's rare whenever you see someone so obviously 
at the top of their game at 45, say. Yeah. Well, I think one interesting trait of, of artists that continue to grow and, and just put out better and better work is that they continually have that kind of, I don't want to say chip on their shoulder, but they definitely have, like, they retain that spirit of, like, something to prove. Who, who, who to, like, to whom, I should say. Who whom, who knows? And who cares? It doesn't matter because it's, like, whatever's driving them is driving them to give us, like, this great emotional experiences with their work, you know what I mean? Yeah, that was a big part of his credo was fighting the system. Right. <clears throat> what was the big hit in the early 80s that was sort of a, a riff on the the record execs? I don't remember, but he's got a, a lot of sort of don't tell me what to do type tracks. Right. In a way, um, Into the Great Wide Open is that sort of story about the guy who moves to Hollywood and then like, and then at the end, it's like the A&R man guy says, I don't hear a hit. It kind of like, it starts going really great, and then that's sort of the end is like, starts the very beginning of like the way down. So even that song is a little jab at like the whole like, get out there and yeah, so it really was his central ethos, and maybe that's what kept him going and kept him getting better and better. Mm-hmm. I don't think that he had any big scandals or drug arrests. I mean, I saw Running Down a Dream, that good documentary about... Great documentary, yeah. Loved it. Right. Yeah, they really had... The Heartbreakers did a great sound. and I think it might be one of my favorite combinations in a band. Right. That is, you know, a rhythm guitarist in Petty and then lead guitar from Campbell. Mm-hmm. And then keys, drums, and bass. Like, sort of have everything there. Because there's a lot of power in a two-guitar band. And sometimes in normal four pieces, if you don't have a two-guitar band, you have a single guitar and keyboard. And you and I think most bands, you know, on many levels are making their mo- the mo- majority of their money from the live show, especially on that higher level. Yeah, for sure. That's where the money is, and so they have to deliver the best fucking show ever. I, I like it that they got the memo there. I saw Petty in 2010, and it was fantastic. So mm-hmm. glad I saw him. A lot of those living legends were real good. McCarty's they have to give it... Good. Their, they have to be their best. You know what I mean? <clears throat> yeah, that's right. They have to. Every city has to get the their very best. Yeah, and not... All veteran bands were able to pull it off quite like that. I mean, it might be a stylistic thing, but some bands just couldn't handle it. Like mm-hmm. it seemed, the more years that went by for a band like Motley Crue, the worse they sounded. Vince Neil just couldn't sing like that anymore. You know, it's funny we, we're talking about this because that's been sometimes that's a little mantra I give myself. I guess it's like a pep talk, maybe like sometimes if I'm going into like an isolation booth to, to lay down a vocal track. Um. Sometimes I had, I definitely have this, like, you know, you can hear yourself so well. You hear a, a pin drop on cotton, you know what I mean? And so you hear every little flub you have in your voice, in your, in your delivery, your pitch, everything comes out on the table. Very, it's all there. Super vulnerable time. So I give myself this little pep talk where I'm like, you know what, if you're going to be like Mr. Cool... You have to you have to earn it. 
and this is where you earn it. You you lay down the the hardest shit you can. That's right. That's that's a good ethos. Lay down the hardest shit you can. And there's nothing quite like the torture of a recording studio. It right. really is under the microscope. Right. And it's got to be right. And you have to do it until it is right. There is no oh that's good enough. I mean. Uh, I like to demand excellence myself when I'm in the studio. Mm -hmm. And I know that you do the same, and it really pays off because then the product is better. Then, like you said, you get to be Mr. Cool Guy. <laughs> well, well, and by Mr. Cool, I mean you get to be confident because you know you just delivered your best. You're like, you, this is the best I can do, you know? You know that I know that you know <laughs> that it's really, really good. <laughs> Heads held high. Because who knows when the next time you'll be in the studio is. You know what I mean? It could be a long time. That's for sure. And if you, know, if you don't have a project studio at home, if you're not into self-recording, then when you're in the studio, it has even more gravitas. Oh, yeah. It matters. you got to put it all out there. So the other dead rock star I thought we'd talk about for a moment is Malcolm Young of ACDC, rhythm yeah. guitar player. Yeah who is in many ways the ultimate rhythm guitarist, was always tight with the drums and bass. Really oh. tight. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he always sounded great. And talk and about those stop and goes. I mean, that was, it, it was so sexy. And it was <laughs> yeah. like, and it could be super fast. And it was still sexy, even though it was super fast. Those movements, like some, you know, like, sounds really cliche, but like, what they did when they weren't playing was so important. Yeah, palm muting and letting oh, silence yeah. reign. All of those, were, all everyone was on the same letter. You know what I mean? Not, you know, obviously the same page. <laughs> they were on the same, yeah, mixing your metaphors. That's my specialty. Well, you could be on the same letter, but maybe on different pages. <laughs> his, I think, to me, his sound, more than anything, was his greatest achievement. And not least of all, because the formula for that sound was so simple. And I could be mistaken here because I'm not that big of a gearhead, but I think he played through a 100 watt Marshall Plexi amplifier with a 4x12 cabinet or a couple 4x12 cabinets, just a Marshall stack. And guitarists out there might recall that that amp has no lead channel. So to non-guitar players, that's the distortion pedal, right? You, a button you press on your amplifier or if it's a pedal that makes your sound real dirty and distorted. The thing is, you can get a distorted sound out of a clean amplifier if you turn it up really, really loud. And the thing is, those plexi amplifiers are 100 watts, so turning those things up really loud just bites your face off, man. And that was sort of the backbone of their sound. It's just, super clean hard rock distortion clean in that whenever you get overdrive with the clean channel you can play all the strings of your guitar and they ring out with a sort of harmonic chime through the distortion in a way that you can't when you, you know, turn on a lead channel say and that's probably my favorite thing about Malcolm Young is how good his guitar playing made ACDC sound when he's playing those Gretches all the time. Yeah, I think Sometimes it's... the big ones, sometimes the like the thin one. Right, it's basically like he was playing an acoustic. But there are always double humbuckers, like those big tall humbuckers on those Gretches, you know?
Yeah, a lot of good stops and starts. Just super clean rock. Yeah, those pauses are just everything. They're everything. It is tragic what happened to him, right? He, he uh, sort of well, yeah. I mean, I, it's been a while since he's performed with the group, right? I mean, yeah, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe two years or so. The, the dementia really, really kicked in hard. <laughs> he had to really be under treatment for that nonstop. Yeah, it just illustrates frailties of the human condition. The alcohol got him. You know. Yeah, it doesn't matter how rich and famous you are, right? It's just if you're going to be undone by your biology, then you can't hide. Well, I remember reading uh, about, you know, especially when they first toured America with Aerosmith. They would do they they would do the the biggest party you can imagine until they passed out, and then whenever everyone kind of came to, they would do it all over again. Yeah, the party just kept going. You know what I mean? So like, I, we've we've been to plenty of parties together. We. After you go through that, you kind of wake up and go, "Geez, yeah. let me crawl home." And yeah, there's like, a recovery. Let me get myself needed. together. Like there was just like, "Nope, let's go back, right back, right back in." How much do you think that has to do with really no responsibilities? I mean, if you're a rock star of that caliber, your your responsibilities are maybe a show a week hence or something. And yeah, it's not like they had to sober up and be ready to go to their job after the weekend and need yeah. a day of recovery. It was just Willing to stay on that level of energy yeah, like, with that with the crowd almost. It's like it's they a, stayed with the crowd even when they were between shows. It's a sort of rock and roll <laughs> no man's land. I mean, I think later on they, they probably toned everything down. Just obviously they had to. but Yeah, for sure. You know, Malcolm is the, uh, the younger brother that, to Angus. No, he's the older brother. He's the older. And then they, there's an even older brother who... That was... that sort of formed their band. Right. Okay. That so was Angus never in youngest. ACDC. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't sure who was the order. <clears throat> yeah. Of they, birth. In Australia, they're sort of a family band going on. So Angus is the youngest. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's clearly the youngest. As far as I mean, and Angus Young let's, let's not make any mistakes here. Is a badass guitarist. It's just right. Like he's the lead guitar version of his brother. I mean, have it, yeah. I mean, those two together were such a powerhouse. Okay, so it's been some time for Levon Helm, but I thought we could include him in the dead rock star category, sort of a, a, a different. Yeah, I noticed your book over here. This wheel's on fire. Yeah, that's right. I've, I was reading some of that, and and uh, I did a little bit of searching for some quotes, and I thought that we'd talk about his uh, perspective on artistic integrity. Because if you recall, the Levon Helm story includes, obviously, the band. But before the band became successful in the late 1960s, they were Bob Dylan's backup group when he went electric controversially in the mid-1960s, like 1965 or so, seem to recall. And through that episode, the audiences were cruel to Dylan and the band. Well, Levon wasn't the drummer for like the Judas show and stuff like that, if that's what you mean. Well, he was the drummer for long enough that they were booed relentlessly. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and he made a decision to, to leave the band, basically after they'd been booed off stage so many times. And he told his uh, biographer, the co-writer of that This Wheels on Fire, that book, the mm -hmm. Levon Helm and the story of the band, 
that uh, to me, music's always been some good chords in a tight rhythm section. This stuff is too damn powerful for me. It just ain't my ambition to be anybody's drummer. I wasn't made to be booed. The whole booing thing became heartbreaking, considering the effort Bob was putting out and how easy it would have been for him to play it safe. I was starting to get real pissed off. It was better for me not to be a part of that. So I, I was just, I was just wondering for you is, do you know, do you think there's any subtext there besides he just couldn't take being booed and he didn't want to be a drummer, or do you think that he had some latent issues with not being the primary guy anymore? My gut reaction to that is he grew up playing music with his family and with his community, and it was always a good time. And they were good bluegrass players, he and his family members and cousins, things like that. So they That's would right. show up to the party, and it would go nuts. You know what I mean? And and then when he got more and more professional, yeah, he was like the leader of the Hawks, right? He got he got like he went pro basically at a young age, and he was doing this for a living, making people have a, a great time dancing and, and partying all night. So then he meets up with this guy Bob, and of course they they admire each other and they they're friends and everything like this. But Bob had an agenda. Yeah. Okay. That's and right. And Levon was. I'm here to An make entertainer. feel good. Yes. What did you say here? It's too damn powerful for me. And he was fighting his audience at the same time, too. Like, it was, he was up to, you know, he had his own trip to go yeah, on. Yeah, and he was going electric, and when he yeah. was a folk artist, it was... And I think it was all amicable. I don't think Bob, you know what I mean? Like, but, yeah, Levon had a whole different journey to go. Makes sense. So, well, you, you know, like yourself, he was a multi-instrumentalist, mm -hmm. played mandolin, played some guitar. Right. And drums, a great, really great drummer. Oh, oh my gosh, he's my, like, number one. Yeah, I mean, sort of like a like, funk drummer. Like, whenever I, whenever I do drums and I'm going to be singing, I always make sure I mention to somebody, like, oh, I'm going to be pulling a Levon tonight. Yeah, the harness the, the spirit of Levon Helm. Right. And, you know, the one time I got to see him, he was, it was, I think, maybe before or after his, one of his surgeries he had, he couldn't sing. Yeah. But he played drum. He played his ass off on the drum. Yeah, I think his daughter was in his band at that point. Yeah, I mean, it was a, they opened for the Black Crows. It was awesome. It was at Chevy Amphitheater. Sweet. That was probably a great show. It was incredible. And, um, you know, but I'd love to have uh, to have heard him sing. You know, I heard a great, I have a great Levon story. Oh, cool. Can nice. I tell a Levon story? Sure, yeah. This is from a very trusted source, so I don't mind telling it. Because oh, sweet. I'm, I'm pretty, you know, I'm Inside like, information here. Pretty sure it's true. Heard it first on the Chase and the Chords podcast. So there's a band, a very, a very uh, talented band out of the mid-PA area called the Badleys. The, the Bad Leaf? The Badleys. B-A-D-L-E-E-S. Oh, Badleys. 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 Yeah. The Badleys. <laughs> Am I saying it right? Yeah, yeah I'm saying I, it I think right. so, right. Maybe say it one more time for our listeners. <laughs> the Badleys. Okay, cool. Anyways, they're a great, great group, and they have their own studio called Saturation Acres. Great studio. Um, and, and I did some recording out there, and so we became friends with these guys. And um, earlier in their career, they had the opportunity to do some of these bigger like festival shows with the remaining members of the band when they were still active after um, Danko passed away. 
Right. Um, so all this to say that he, he got he got a chance to sit down and talk with Levon. Cool. That's the whole point. And the whole time that he's talking with Levon, which is probably, let's say, like, you know, a nice long conversation, probably like half an hour. And the whole time they're speaking, Levon keeps asking, like, hey, man, you mind, you mind if I bum another smoke off you? And so the, I think it was the guy, Brett, and he kept giving him cigarettes. So you're like, of course, give Levon a smoke. Why not? Sure. And so they're talking, talking again, like more and more smokes. Um, and then I guess finally the, one of the road guys was like, hey, you know, time to go, Levon. So the bus was there, ready to drive away. And so he's saying goodbye and all this. And uh, I guess as he's walking towards the tour bus, he pulls out of his pocket of like a brand new unopened pack of cigarettes. And he opens it up and like fires up a smoke. Gets on the bus. That's <laughs> pretty intense, man. That's like the tax of talking with him, you know? Yeah. Keep feeding me cigarettes. I'll talk with you all night. <laughs> man, there's a lot there because he, he died of brook cancer. Is that is that how he died? Yeah. Some, some, yeah. Mm-hmm. Smoker to the end. It seems that way, yeah. yeah. It, it, I think it is kind of like a, a friendly thing. Yeah, for sure. So, Maybe he forgot he had him. Sure. Maybe he forgot he had him. <laughs> we may never know the truth. So, anyways, I, I had a couple more music-related questions. If you could form a band with one dead rock star, who would it be? Wow. Hmm. Just say you had a record contract and a tour booked, and and you were charged with meeting up with this person and right. writing, recording, rehearsing a record. One dead rock star. One dead rock star. Could I like? I mean, I would. I want to. Would say, you like to phone a friend? I want to say Fat Elvis. Okay, sweet. Late, I mean, just before he nice died. Nice choice. I yeah. Want, just before he died, Elvis. I want to work with him. To hell yeah. You know he'd work all night and then like take a plane to Utah for like his favorite sandwich. Just want, that's that's when I wanted to hang out with him. Maybe you I had to know them. it; it would have been a blast. I could have saved them, dude. Right, you could have saved them. You could have like, talked them out of it. Hey, I like sandwiches too. I'll come with you. Maybe I would have been in the bathroom and he couldn't have gotten in. That's right, because you had had so many sandwiches yourself. I was like, I'm sorry, Fat Elvis. Like, I can't. I can't right now. I, I'm I'm on the toilet. I'm sorry. I want to, you know. Besides hypothetically saving Fat Elvis's life, what other reasons can you imagine for forming a band? Because if you want to look up, I mean, you can. In 1977, Elvis put on a series of concerts, okay, across this great nation, and there's one where he did um, Unchained Melody. Oh, I saw that. You seen that on piano. Oh, I didn't even know oh he played God, piano, and then he just crushed it. It melts your heart, melts your heart. And um, ever since that, I've been li- trying to get my hands on more and more stuff he put out in those later years before. His, you know, he died in '77. What am I saying? But like that, I mean, he did a lot. I mean, he was always doing stuff. There's like so much documentation, and that's like goes without saying, dude. But the, just looking in that specific area of like '76. Like, 75 to 77, let's say that. Anyhow, he was so passionate about what he was doing, and I think because he was so lost. And... Yeah, there you go. Yeah, this is it. This is the live version. I heard the and microphone. he's playing the piano. I mean, it's incredible. 
<laughs> Elvis, who knew, right? Seriously. I mean, really, I was like watching it so closely because I'm like, he is playing the piano on this. He's like professional playing. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Guitarist. Basis. That's the thing. He yeah. really, I mean, he had that fire. You know what I mean? Yep. However, however campy he might have become. Yeah, he, he totally had that 10,000 hour roll down. I mean, he played a ton of music. Yeah. He could deliver the goods when he had to. Even, even he sounded then. so good, too. His yeah. voice was really good. For sure. Yeah, I think his voice got better the bigger his body became. His <laughs> that's his <laughs> instrument, any, anyway. His instrument got Just, bigger yeah, and bigger. more sonorous, right? He could really push it out, you know? A giant synth chamber. I mean, he couldn't push it out in the end, but he could push it out to pop. Okay, yeah. <laughs> we all know that he couldn't push it out in the end. All right, so moving on. Next softball question. So, about songwriting, do you have a favorite chord progression? So, which chords do you spend most of the time chasing? And what do you reflexively play when you pick up an acoustic, say? I pretty much, every time I pick up a guitar, I usually hit an A minor, a G. Right, just go right for Tom Petty's yeah. breakdown. And I, 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 love those, I love an A minor. I really do. I feel like it's, oh, it's good it to, can start. Glad somebody else has a favorite chord. It could start, you know, and it has such a, it can go either way feel. You can make it hot, like last half full sounding with the right chords around it. Yeah. Or you can make it devastating. So sure. It's that sort of like, it yeah, can play the, on both sides. Love it. That perfectly placed minor chord. Really mm -hmm. change the direction of your tune, and it's right in my key range, so I'm always, I'm oh, always good. trying to include it, yeah. stay like where I can really be juicy. Yeah, I, I like an A major with an electric guitar through a a rock and amp. I, that would be like sort of one of my favorite guitar nice. sounds. We're so, pretty close, man. Yeah, pretty close. We both have A. <laughs> yeah, that's right, and it also suits my singing voices. Is the key of A. We're like, oh, I think we're really close. Our, yeah, our that song of, we co-wrote together. I think together. you can sing a lot, some high, higher than me, though. Yeah, that's through all the practice of singing harmony, just out of necessity. I don't know if it even sounds good, but you I got can up sort in of, the attic. Yeah, sure, I can sort of squeal out some you got sort up of there pitch. With Johnny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Johnny Southern, great harmony singer for sure. He can get up there high so and high. keep a keep a keep a nice clean. Non-head voice, it's, right? Yeah, yeah, that's like true pipe. Yeah, voice. like a like a song note. Well, that's what I love so much about Bon Scott is that it was oh, his yeah. range. Like Brian Johnson's doing the scream falsetto. Yeah, he's just like pushing it somehow. We're, it was he was all squirrely Bon Scott and just like yeah, just getting those notes. He was out just there. singing, right. you know, like he was almost made it look like it didn't even cost, cost him a dime to <laughs> yeah. sing that high. So powerful. That's yeah. why I never really. Got touched like that from Brian Johnson. Yeah, from Brian Johnson. I, I agree. I, I think Bon Scott was, was better. I recently bon learned Scott how to... Bon Scott blessed me. <laughs> I he was your uh, the preacher doing the service for your baptism? Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, I mean he blessed my life. Oh, okay. Not like the first blessing. Not like a religious ceremony, but like I listened to him and he and his voice blessed me. Okay. <laughs> That's what I mean. <laughs> Can you list three musicians who've most impacted your life? 
And so who has wielded the most power over your mind musically? They could be people you know, or they could be influences. That's an easy question. Here we go. Three people. Bob Dylan, number one. Uno. Okay, nice. Ed Honcho. Number El Jefe. Number, number, uno. number two. Jeff Lynne. Oh, good. His work, his work behind a, a board in the studio, his songwriting, his playing, his taste. Remember, we're talking about being tasty. We're going to talk about Mr. Taste. Yeah. Holy smokes. Yeah, a lot of spice there. I mean, he and I mean, he did that George Harrison record we love so much. Oh, man, I, I love the uh, Brainwashed, Brainwashed album. Brainwashed, yeah. yeah. And then number three. Basically completed the album from incomplete studio yeah. sessions. And you turned me onto that record. Whoops, I'm sorry. You turned me onto that record. I remember, and it really, and it, and at that time, I didn't even know it was Jeff Lynne working on it until I read about it. You yeah. know what I mean, and all that. It Amazing. sounds exactly like the Traveling Wilburys. Mm -hmm. Sort of like nailed his production style with that Traveling Wilburys record series. Yeah. Yep. And it's just a third. It's like a third Traveling Wilburys album. Absolutely. And my personal favorite from George Harrison. I don't think anything else is as good. Yeah. Oh no, you mean Brainwashed. Brainwashed, yeah. The for, the Traveling Wilburys for me is like my favorite band of all time. Yeah, it's got to be up there for me too. It's so good. I mean, obviously who's in the band, but the songs just embody this sort of philosophy that I try and embody myself when I'm putting songs together. They had this certain swagger, this tongue-in-cheek, this satire happening, and it was like they were talking about serious things in like this fun way. And it was like, wow, what a, I mean, what a beautiful way to get some like skeletons out of your closet through music and make it fun and like catch. That's right, and even form obviously formulaic, but so effectively formulaic. I mean, that's the whole. I was totally copying that as hard as I could with like nothing bad ever happens. Yeah, what to happens me. when you get five? Uh, songwriters together right they're just gonna write songs that are great yeah. i mean that's how it worked out i mean I, I must have listened to that i mean i can't even count just studying it that's right so you got dylan and jeff lynn on your list so far right and who's number three number three of the list of musicians who have most impacted your life wielded the yeah. most power over you musically I think that's the most interesting yeah. one because maybe you're not as in control of that. Who has wielded the most power? Right. Number three is probably Jerry Lee Lewis. Piano rocking. I remember hearing him at a very young age and really getting that uh, electric shock of like, wow, something's yeah. happening here. Sure. It was so vicious. You know what I'm saying? He was just yeah. like, bam, bam, bam. He was really wild. Yelling in key. Oh, man. It was like a ram. It was like a wild punk show. Before, on the piano. There, before there was punk. Yeah, can you imagine? You could have a house party that's delivered just on a piano because pianos are so loud. And then you have some, rock the someone down. playing like yeah. that, just crunching the piano. So I, I got to say Jerry Lee Lewis for number three because I, I definitely got this. You know, I mean, some of that longtime darling stuff. We recorded together. Oh yeah, that's right. I was I was definitely gonna go for that ramped up, hyped yeah. up blues party. Everyone's going crazy on speed, maybe. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> the uh, the song "Baby Doll" has that piano hook. That's mm. very Jerry Lee Lewis. And that's why he was so great because a lot of piano players aren't into that. 
you know? A lot of piano players don't want to sit there and go, bang, 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 bang. They're, they're yeah. annoyed by it. They got to reread their job description. But that's why he, because he was the singer and playing, so he he made it perfect, you know? It was really, Elton John's that, like that, that good, too. Yeah, I, I, think. I think that that's an interesting concept of who is imparting the most influence on you, the most power, even if you're not consciously allowing that power to happen. And I would say that Motley Crue did that for me because it was the same thing. What is happening here? I had a paper out when I was 12 and a Walkman. So I would listen to my Motley Crue tape while I delivered my papers. And that was the first time for music I just got so fascinated with the sound of rock guitars and riffs. And I just started asking questions about what's making that sound. And then I would read the packaging and I would see that Nikki Six wrote all the songs. I was like, he plays bass. Is, he, is that the sound that I hear? And then that made me figure out what was the bass and what was the guitar. Mm-hmm. And then it was soon after that I started playing guitar. I started playing guitar basically as a consequence of the matrix of rock and roll machines. And, <laughs> and basically I haven't looked back. Right? I've yeah. been playing my hands into hamburger since. Well, you and you, speaking of like an artist growing, I have to say you've just gotten better and better and better. Like all you do is get better. Thanks, man. It's like your habit is get it better. Yeah, that's, that's my awesome. my only uh, one operating principle. So I just I gotta keep going for it. Right, and it's and, and like I'm I definitely take inspiration from you now because I'm trying to do that on the drums. Like I've I mean I've been playing the drums with Barrels of Beethoven so much, so I definitely have like a lot of practice in on like all kinds of different rhythms and things like that. Um, and I've had so many breakthroughs. It's been very exciting, I have to say, because I've had a big breakthrough with my hi-hat, my left foot. Well, has it been a, a new commitment to practicing? Well, when I think of practice, I think of me sitting by myself with the drums and playing for like an hour and a half. Spending time with your instrument. So when I'm playing with Barrels of Beethoven, so, so much of what we do is educational and interactive. So sometimes we like actually learn a whole song with a group of people from the audience, them on the pants, you know what I mean? So we end up playing for like three, four hours at a time. It's great. I love it. You so, can really but, find your groove. But when, I, but when I do play with them, I play for a long, long time. And, it's, and that's, I, I feel like that encompasses what I would consider to be like a good practice. You know what I mean? No, it makes sense. I don't sense. want to skimp on rehearsing because I have to rehearse for this petty show. And that's what I'm saying. I have to really jump on it you know yeah sometimes mean? it's more of getting your hands dirty than mm-hmm. just enjoying a long rehearsal but long rehearsals are great for the focus that is forced upon you mm-hmm. you have to do it now we're all here oh yeah and and that and my mentality about rehearsing has changed so much that it makes it so much more enjoyable because i think of rehearsing as a practice even in and of itself so like i'm gonna practice rehearsing now and and like do does that make sense? Like in in a longer spectrum, I guess you'd have to see it like this whole thing of rehearsing that I've done over years and years and years. This is a this whole thing is one big practice that I'm doing. You know, like the practice of yoga or the practice of the, of it's meditation. cumulative. Like doing rehearsal is a a practice of mine, and so I can really get a lot more out of it that way, rather than like oh we got to get this done and this you know what I mean like which which is all a part of it. But if you do it through that different um, lens of I'm practicing this, then you almost have this uh, new, fresh approach of like this. This could re- I could really get something out of this. 
doesn't have to be rote. You're committing to improvements, mm-hmm. at least in your mind. Right. And then you can just use that philosophy to, mm-hmm. to guide your movements, to stay on target. Right? You can turn off your targeting computer and just use the force. I mean, we're talking about like existential things. Like That's a big lesson I've learned through music and through a friend of mine, um, Brandon Bone. He taught me about, you know, we did this project together where we, I was just helping him out, but he, the whole project was to tie enough uh, balloons to a chair that would float out in this field. And we tied, we were filling up balloons all day, tying it to this thing. It never floated all day long. And by the end of the day, I think I said something like, man, like, sucks we didn't get it to work, you know? And he looked at me and he was like, he was like, it did work. We did it. Like, this, like this, this is the practice of, of like, trying to make stuff ha- work. Yeah, failure has to be included under the rubric. So you don't judge practice. the process by the results. And I never looked at music that way. I never looked at art that way. So after that, and it's taken a while for me, because I, I learned things very slowly, but it's taken a while for yes. me, and, and I realized it's like this whole another hole you can look through at life. It's great. Yeah, this that leads well to what is my last question here. It's sort of a philosophical question, and it pertains to songwriting and performance. And how do you communicate your music clearly and persuasively? How do you go about using persuasion in your music? Does that enter into the your thought process at all? Oh, absolutely, definitely. You you want it to be a conversation, and therefore you want to use the right um, words, the, and you want to talk the right the right way, like you would. You want to talk. That's right. You want to make your points clear. But you want to talk in your natural, or the, or I should say, not your, but the natural dialect, if you will. Yeah, you or, want to have a conversational tone, just like a. If you're giving a speech or you're talking to someone or meeting strangers, you don't want to affect some sort of dramaturgical delivery that's awkward for everyone involved. It's right. sort of like that with music, I guess. And I mean, you can deliver it like as professionally as you like, but I think how you say the words and or how it's written even, it, it becomes so crucial in creating that common ground with, the, with an audience. Does that make sense? I think so. So that when you say like, when you say persuasive, that, that's what you said, right? Persuasive. Yeah, persuasive. Like, how yeah. do you how do you how do you I think articulate? By using, I mean, it's not like I mean, it, well, yeah, it is actually. I mean, you're using the language of the people you're trying to reach. You have to speak the language of the people you need there for you to support your work. Yeah, what is that? That's called the speaking in the vernacular. Exactly, the vernacular. Yeah, the vernacular. Exactly. So the vernacular can be whatever you want it to be, of course. I mean, but you you kind of have to pick one, I think. It, it, you you yeah, got to choose one. can't cross too many platforms. And I think that comes back around to you got knowing thyself, you know, that old ancient saying. Yeah. Knowing thyself, and, and only by knowing thyself can that vernacular be, like, Strong, you know what I mean? It could have all the essential qualities that you need. It's, it's this thing. 
Yeah. And this thing only, here it is. Mm-hmm. You're, no one's confused. And then you right. can be persuasive. Then you can... Right. Then, then your music has gravitas. I think once you find that, that vernacular, you can actually use... At least for me, I, once I came around to these... Once it, everything kind of dropped in for me as a songwriter... Um, I started to realize that I could, like I said, with rehearsal, the same thing. I started to think, like, oh, I could really get something out of this. I don't have to just sort of pick from the wheel of lyrics. What'll, what'll sound good here? I could actually deliver some of my truth, if you, if I, if I may call it that. You know, like deep things that I, you know, really fleshing it out in this, um, using this vehicle of. What what I use is a sort of like American songbook style traveling Wilburys, like we're saying, that style of, That's the vehicle. of songwriting. Use that as the vehicle. Then it can be as hooky and catchy as you want it to be, and you're still getting your 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 shit out. You it's know just I mean? the superstructure for the yeah. content. Right. You have the content, but you're using the the superstructure of so you're in the a, style. So I'm sort of choosing like that that shell, like you said, that shell. Just hang your hat on it, mm-hmm. and all your riffs. Because it and it just comes, it seems to come so natural to me to to write that way, and so when I first got turned on to those those folks I mentioned, it it just kept strengthening it more and more that this is make you know before I knew it, you know trying so many genres as I have, I love playing drums and all these other places and music, but when it comes down to like sit down and write a song like. I'm sorry, but it's gonna end up sounding like this. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean you are the human being that you are, mm-hmm. and you have the experiences that you have, so you can't help but sound like yourself. Right, and that's what I mean. Like you just, you know, in so many ways in in life, even, and so much so when you when you're creating work, like you know, music or whatever art it is, you really have to be so brutally honest, and. And it can be scary, and like you can be so vulnerable, especially when you're singing. I mean, yes. Think about like a sculpture. Ultimate vulnerability. Like a sculpture can be so vulnerable, but maybe you wouldn't know it by the work they put out. But obviously, when you're singing, your voice tells the story, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so you, it's but you've got to own it and grab it and and use it to your advantage. Where like this is my my um, whipping post here, you know. So, Brett, it's been great <laughs> chatting with you. Thanks a lot for oh, coming on the podcast. Oh, pleasure to be here, buddy. Thank you for having me. All right. Let's do it again sometime. For sure.